The book of Genesis is where we are. Now, the English word Genesis, as many of you might um, imagine, literally means our origin. Thus, the name of this particular teaching series, Origins. When we talk about Genesis, we're talking about origins. The word Genesis means origin or the head of or what we would say the start of. And it comes from, the name of the book comes from the third word in the scripture text. Look at it. In the beginning. And there you have the word uh, from which we get the word Genesis. In the Genesis, in the origin, at the start, or in the beginning. Genesis, of course, is the first book of the Bible, but it's not only the first book of the Bible, it's also the first book of the Hebrew Scriptures, not just the Judeo-Christian Scriptures, Old and New Testaments, but it's the first book of the Torah, or the first book of the law. So you might know already that the, the Bible is divided into different groups, Old and New Testament, I just mentioned, but also one uh, division of the Scripture would be the first five books of the Bible. These are called the Pentateuch. And so the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These five books are known as a collection unto themselves. They are known as the law, the books of the law, or the books of the Torah. And we know that Moses was the author of the books of the law. So Moses is the author of the first five books of the Bible. Moses then is the author of the book of Genesis. This is attested to throughout the scriptures at least a couple of dozen times. And multiple times Jesus himself told us that Moses is the author of the Torah. Genesis was written, it becomes clear when you study it, it was written to serve as a documentary of beginnings, a documentary of how things started. And so over these six weeks together, we're going to be studying through, really skipping through the, the chapters of Genesis. Now, there are 50 chapters in the book of Genesis. We're going to take six weeks to study it, so you know it's not in any measure an exhaustive study. But what these 50 chapters will speak to us about, the stories of our origins that will be addressed in the book of Genesis will be, obviously, the origin of the heavens and the earth, uh, the story of creation. And then in the weeks following, we'll talk about the origin of our hope. This will be in the flood story. The origin of the nations, where did the nations come from? We'll learn this in chapters 9 through 11. Uh, we'll talk about the origin of God's people. How did God call a people out of the world unto himself? We'll see this in the Abrahamic covenant. We'll talk about the origins of the Messiah or the Messiah seed, the promise of the Messiah. This will be in Isaac's story and then the origin of our redemption, the promise and the model of redemption that we'll see in Joseph's story. But today you've turned to Genesis chapter number one, so we are going to begin with the original origin or the beginning of beginnings. We're going to begin with the story of creation. 
Now, by the way, before we read this passage, we should agree together, shouldn't we, that the question of how our universe began, the question of our origin, how our species began, is no small contemplation. Would you agree? This is an incredibly important question. And the reason that this question is so important is because our answer to the question of how the universe began will form our view of everything else in life. Everything that I believe to be true and valuable and worthy in life will be shaped by, directed by, uh, formulated in this idea, this understanding of how the universe began. And the reason that is the case is because our view of our origin will either preclude or demand the reality of and the activity of God. Let me say it again. What I believe about how life began either will preclude my need for there to be a God who is real and active in this world, or it will eliminate, or or rather it will demand that there must be a God who is real and who is active in this world. Writing about this in his book, um, The Biblical Basis for Modern Science, Henry Morris writes these words. He says, the fundamental fact that irrevocably distinguishes true creationism on the one hand from true evolutionism on the other hand is the pre-existence of God. It's a, it's a, it's a mouthful. It's an important statement. The fundamental fact that, di- that makes the difference, it distinguishes between if God created all things or if natural causes produced all things is the question of, does God exist? And if naturalism and evolution are true, then there is no need for a God. We can have all that exists and there be no divine cause to any of it. But if Genesis chapter 1 is true and the story of creation is true, then it changes everything about what I believe about all of life. So, Let's read Genesis chapter number one. And we're going to read the whole chapter, and I want you to follow along with me. And in fact, I want you to help me read it, and you're going to have to get a little bit engaged now, okay? And, and I want you even to be a little bit animated. So, and I don't mean get crazy, but I do want you to be emphatic. Maybe that's a better word. Every time, as we're reading through Genesis one, every time you see these words, and God said, and you'll see those words 10 times in this chapter. Every time you see the words, and God said, I want you to read them, both campuses, out loud with me. So every time we come to those three words in the text, we're all going to read those words together. And God said. Are you ready? Here we go. Genesis 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there, you did that beautifully, by the way, let there be light. 
and there was light. And God saw, that the light, saw the light, that it was good. God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. And let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. And the evening and the morning were the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place. And let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth bring forth grass and herb uh, herb yielding seed and fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind and the tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of heaven to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light Upon the earth, and it was so. And God made two great lights the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth, and to rule over the day and over the night, and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales and every living creature that moves which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind and every winged fowl after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the fowl multiply in the earth. And the evening and the morning were the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing, beast of the earth after his kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth after his kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it 
and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth and every tree in the which is the fruit of the tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat. And to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. I want you to write this down, if you will, somewhere in your notes. And I know that many of you are note takers, and I'm grateful for that. And I want us to go ahead and establish what Genesis chapter 1 makes very clear. Uh, But get it down, and then we're going to divide it up a little bit. But let's begin by writing down this fact that God created the universe with purpose. God created the universe with purpose. And I want us to understand the significance of this fact by actually stating it in two parts. And so I want us to emphasize, first of all, the fact that God created the universe. God created the universe. We'll talk about the purpose in just a minute. But when we say that God created the universe, we are stating the biblical rationale for our Origins. We're stating the biblical rationale for the existence of the universe. Now, when we talk about the universe, um, what are we talking about? In scientific terms, the universe is defined as all of space and all of time and all matter. So the universe consists of everything that exists in all of time. It includes planets and stars and solar systems and galaxies. It includes people and animals. It includes the largest and and most grand planets that we can know uh, in our own solar system Uh, Planets like Jupiter and Saturn, the largest uh, heavenly bodies. But it also includes the smallest and tiniest little particles of dust. All of this is included in the discussion of the universe. And Genesis 1 says that God made it all. God created the universe. Astronomers tell us they estimate that there are billions of galaxies within the universe. Now, I want you to think about this for just a minute. We live in the Milky Way galaxy, but astronomers tell us that we're not alone in the universe in terms of the existence of other galaxies. In fact, there are billions, they believe, billions of galaxies, And that within each one of those billions of galaxies, there are countless solar systems that make up each one of those galaxies together in all of our universe. 
The question at hand is how did this magnificent universe with its billions of galaxies and multiplied billions of solar systems, how did all of it, with all of its grandeur, come into existence? How did it all originate? As we were reading the text a moment ago, I I asked you, and you did it beautifully, by the way, I asked you to affirm out loud for me each of the 10 times in Genesis 1 when the Bible says, and God said. And the reason that I wanted you to do that was to emphasize the reality, what the Bible teaches us about creation by fiat or creation by command. Here's what the Bible says that The billions of galaxies within our universe made up of multiplied billions of solar systems with countless trillions of planets, from the largest to the smallest, the Bible says that it all came into existence. It all originated at the single word of Almighty God that God commanded and God said, and it was so. The Bible says, tells us this in the book of Hebrews. Look at Hebrews 11 and verse number three. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that the things that are seen were not made out of things which are visible. Now, I want you to wrap your mind around what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Here's what we know to be true by faith, that God spoke into existence out of nothing, everything that is. If y'all are with me, I want you to shout amen. Amen. Let it be so, right? That God by fiat, God by command, he did not need baser elements to work with. He did not need something from which to formulate. Nothing existed. There was nothing only God and God only. And that in that sovereign and complete infinite aloneness, God spoke the word and the universe came into existence. Hebrews 11, three says, we believe this. We know this to be true by faith. By fiat or by command, God spoke and the universe came into existence. Now that belief, Hebrews eleven thirteen says, by faith we understand this to be true. But that belief of the command of God that the universe would come into existence is in stark contrast to the naturalist view of the origin of the universe. It is in stark contrast to the evolutionary view of the origin and the development of the universe which goes something like this. Naturalism tells us that approximately 13 billion years ago that there was a tightly bound, small collection of chemicals or of of, of neutrons or of, of elements, minute subatomic elements, By the way, the naturalists never are able to tell us where those original ingredients came from. But from somewhere, they were tightly bound 
And eventually, there was a catastrophic Big Bang. And this Big Bang that occurred 13 billion years ago spewed these subatomic particles, neutrons and protons and electrons were spewed into the vastness of space. And that over billions of years, that those now randomly flowing elements began to collect together and to rotate and spin and and they began to form atoms and chemicals and gases which over billions of more years ultimately formed planets and solar systems and galaxies and that finally over the process of even more billions of years our own unique galaxy formed and within our galaxy, our solar system, and within our solar system, our planet, planet Earth, home, over a process of millions of years, came in to being. I'm not making light of it at all. I am telling you exactly what naturalism, what evolution teaches about the origin of the universe. Now, of course, you know, don't you, that this Earth which supposedly was formed over millions and billions of years by chance, is finely tuned to support life. Finely tuned. Our planet exists in perfect relation to our sun. Perfect relation. Were our planet just a tad bit, by the way, scientific term, tad bit, If it were a tad bit closer to our sun, we would all burn up. Life could not be supported here. It would be far too scorching hot. Uh, If we were a a little bit further away from our sun, then then we would be, the the, the earth would be too cold to support life and too dark. The earth is so fine-tuned that we have as a planet the exact right mass as a planet in order to produce the exact correct gravitational pull to the earth so that when you got out of bed this morning, you didn't float out of bed. You put your feet down and they stay down because of the, of the mass of the earth. Just the right gravitational pull. Our planet is finely tuned to provide us with an atmosphere so that we can breathe so that oxygen and carbon dioxide interact correctly so that we can live. And even the earth's tilt on her axis is just right so that in the rotation, our summers and our winters interact together correctly. Naturalism declares that all of this fine-tuned complexity and perfection is the result of random chance over billions of years. But Genesis 1 says, and God created the heavens and the earth. There is, you cannot overstate the difference in those two doctrines, those two points 
of view. By the way, look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 again. Do you notice how that in verse number 1, all of the elements required to have a true definition of a universe are included. The universe is defined as matter within space and time. Look at Genesis chapter 1 and verse number 1. In the beginning, there's time. God created the heavens, there's space, and the earth, there's matter. And in fact, he goes on to say in verse number 16 of chapter 1 that God created the sun and the moon and the stars as well. So here's what I want you to know. When we talk about origins, the biblical rationale for the origin of the universe is God created the heavens. Now, here's the second part of that statement. I said we would do it in two parts. The second part is this. God created the universe with purpose. God created the universe with purpose. And this is to say that the biblical view of our origin emphasizes the purpose, the intentionality of a creative God versus the randomness of a naturalist view that we all simply arrived here by chance. God created the universe with a purpose. I believe that scripture indicates at least three reasons why God created the universe. I'm certain there are more than this, but I think there are at least three reasons why the universe exists. Let me give them to you quickly. Number one, God created the universe as a place to display his glory. A place to display his glory. Listen to Psalm 19 and verse number one. The Bible says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament show his handiwork. Has this been your experience? Have you stood out on a dark night, looked up at the stars, even some of the planets? Have you looked through a, 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 a sports store telescope, a tiny little toy telescope and seen the craters in the moon and the mountains on, uh, in the moon and seen Venus and Mars? Have you looked through a professional or even a, a, an astronomical telescope and seen in the far reaches? And have you said, God is a mighty God? It declares his glory. It screams intelligent design. Let me give you a simple illustration. I have with me today my phone. It's an incredible device. It's a tiny little thing. But when I look at this phone and all that it can do, it can call anybody I wanted to call. It can text anybody I wanted to text. It can tell me what the weather's going to be tomorrow. It can manage my schedule. It can transfer money. It can borrow money. It can order things from Amazon. It can do all kinds of wonderful things. It can take pictures with my grandchildren. This is an amazing device. But when I look at this device, I never say, I believe that this was randomly assembled over a lot of years to provide me with such complexity and such ability to be able to perform so many tasks vital to life. When I look at the phone, I say, somebody's smarter than me. <laughs> what does it scream? It screams intelligent design. It tells me that the circuitry in this phone could not assemble itself, that, the, that the, the, the mechanics in this phone, even that the design and the construction of this phone could not create itself. There had to be an engineer. There had to be a design team. There had to be a manufacturing facility. There had to be people and machines that put it 
together, you would say, Pastor, you're foolish to think that somehow you could just find that one day and it made itself. Well, the universe surely with such complexity screams intelligent design and it gives glory. There's no glory in the phone. The glory goes to the originators of the phone. There's no glory in the universe itself. The glory of the universe demands or declares the glory of God. Secondly, God created the universe, particularly the earth, uh, as a place for his people. God would create people and he wanted to have a place where they would dwell. Listen to Isaiah 45 in verse number 18. For thus says the Lord that made uh, the heavens, or created the heavens, God himself that uh, formed the earth and made it, he has established it, established it, and he created it not in vain. He formed the earth to be inhabited. That's why God made it. He made it for us. He, he made it so that we would dwell here. The third reason that God created the earth with purpose uh, was as a means of general revelation. And I'll read to you quickly from Romans chapter 1, where the Bible says in verse 20, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly uh, seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says that the creation doesn't just say God is glorious. It's not just a place for us to live, but it is a first step of revelation or general revelation that God is powerful, God is mighty, I must contend with who he is. And he goes on at the end of verse 20 to say, therefore you are without excuse. God made the universe. He made the universe with purpose. That purpose includes his glory, his revelation, and his people. Well, speaking about people then, we ought to move on to the second thing that Genesis 1 tells us, and it is this, that God created mankind in his own image. God created the universe with purpose, and then within the universe, specifically on planet Earth, God created mankind in his own image. Now, I mentioned that it would be impossible to overstate the difference between naturalism and creationism in relation to the creation of the universe, but even more so, even more so when it comes to the creation of the human family. Let me, let me explain to you the two doctrines, not of the origin of the universe, but of the origin of man. Evolution, or naturalism, tells us that simple non-living organisms, non-living organisms, gave rise to more complex living organisms so that over millions of years and through the process of natural selection, all life forms, there's the key phrase, all life forms eventually descended from a common ancestor. This is called descent with modification. That over the process of millions of years and through the evolutionary process and by random selection, what some would call survival of the fittest, each subsequent generation modified just a bit to create a more sustainable, a more surviving generation and then the next one, and so on, and so on, until finally, from single-celled amoeba in a primordial soup existing in a prehistoric planet, we now have all of the complexity that I see arrayed in front of me this morning, and all of its beauty and glory. <laughs> That's naturalism. That's evolution. Or you could believe Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 
It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. I choose to believe that, don't you? Now, the Bible says on the sixth day of creation, day number six, the last day of creation, God created man. Uh, Chapter 2 of Genesis, we haven't read any verses in yet, but chapter 2 drills down on the specifics of the creation of man on the sixth day. Look at chapter 2 and verse number 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. Verse 21 and 22 then describes the creation of Eve, Adam created from the dust of the ground. Look at chapter 2 verse 21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh there. And with the rib, which the Lord God had taken from man, he made a woman. And he brought her unto the man. So the Bible says in chapter 1, verse 27, and then drills down and explains it more fully in chapter number 2, is that both Adam and Eve, if y'all are with me, shout amen. amen. Both Adam and Eve, male and female, are created... Imago Dei, in the image of God. And that all of Adam and Eve's sons and daughters, all the way until today, that every human being is made in the image of God. The word image means to reflect or to be in the resemblance of. This will help you understand it. When it says that we were made in the image of God, it would be like a mirror, a mirror image, or a portrait of. The image within a mirror is not the actual person, but it is an authentic and true reflection of the actual person. A portrait is not the real human being, but it is an accurate representation of what that real human being is like. I never knew Abraham Lincoln, neither did you, but I do have a good representation. I know what he looked like because I have seen portraits of Abraham Lincoln. That's to be made in the image of. The portrait was made in the image of Abraham Lincoln. We were made in the image of God. The word likeness, when he says, uh, let, him, let us make him in our likeness, the word likeness means let us make him similar to us. God said, let us make man to be like us, or to be, uh, speaking of the Trinity, to be like God and to be an accurate reflection or representation of what God is like. So what does it mean, really, when you get beyond the definitions, practically, Functionally, what does it mean that man is created in the image of God? Well, you know, I think the first thing that we ought to note about that is to say that to be made in the likeness of God, this, this uh, distinction that Genesis 1.27 gives to the human family, it is this distinction of being made in the, in the image of God that sets the human family apart from all other creation Specifically, because animals were made on day six as well, it sets us apart from the animal kingdom. And I readily admit that when I ask the question, what does it mean to be made in the image of God, uh, this is 
a topic, the answer to that question exhausts more mental capacity and spiritual understanding than I have, or even my ability to, to, to talk in one message about the, the minute parts of that that I do understand. But I think there are, there are a couple of fundamental things we should understand about what it means to be made in the image of God. I would suggest just a few to you and begin by saying that to be made in the image of God means that as his creation, you and I share some of the attributes of God himself. Not all to be sure, but some of the attributes of God we share. Let me suggest three. I would say number one, we share the attribute of immortality. God is eternal. God will never die. Now, we do not share the attribute of immortality in that God is eternally preexistent. We are not eternally preexistent, but we have been made immortal beings to live forever. You've never met anybody who will not live forever somewhere. We all will exist forever, though eternal life in hell is called eternal death, but it is, in fact, an existence, an awareness of death throughout all eternity. We share in God's immortality. We will live forever somewhere. Secondly, we share God's free will. God has the ability, the, the, the ability to conceive a, a notion, to conceive a path, and to choose accordingly. We share in that free will. You have, I possess as well, the ability to determine my right for better my, my path for better or for worse. I can conceive of a, of a path and then take it. This makes us free moral agents. We can choose to do right or we can choose to do wrong. This is an attribute of divinity. It's an attribute of God. Animals, on the other hand, live by mere instinct. Now, I don't want to overstate this, and I know that many of you love your dogs, and mine's okay as well. But when it's near feeding time and my dog looks at me longingly as if I am the greatest thing in the world and he worships me, here's what I know. He's hungry and I have food. At the end of the day, the animal kingdom, I don't mean to say they don't interact, but they are driven by mere instinct. That is not us. We do not have to be driven by pure instinct. We have the right as free moral agents and a free will to conceive and to choose right or wrong. Thirdly, we share in the attribute of love, of love. That is that we have the ability to engage in, in expressions of love, to God first in worship and then to love others. Not pure maternal instincts or the instincts of a pack or a herd, but we share in the attribute of love. And here's what I would go on to say, and that's just a tiny scratching of the surface of what it means to be made in the image of God. But when you take all of what it means to be made in the image of God, here's what I would say. It is that to be made in God's image guarantees the intrinsic value and worth of every single human being. If y'all are listening, shout amen. Every person... Every human being is made in the image of God and therefore every human being matters because of imago Dei, because they have been made in God's image. 
So do you see the importance of understanding that our origin is in the creative hand of God, that we are made in his image? If our value, if our intrinsic inborn worth comes from being made in the image of God, then that's one thing. But if, on the other hand, we are simply evolved from natural causations and there is no God, then where does our value come from? It cannot be intrinsic. It cannot be within us. It must be produced by us. Value, if I am not made in the image of God, my worth as a person can only be determined by my power to take or to demand my worth or by my capacity to produce such that I demonstrate my worth. Worth must be earned or demanded if it is not intrinsic, if it is not essential to our creation. And so what happens when a culture moves away from, begins to embrace a naturalist view of our origins, moves away from the reality and involvement of and necessity of a God, begins to say that we have evolved naturalistically, therefore we are not made in the image of God, we are simply the result of millions of years of evolution following billions of years of, of the uh, universe being created, So where does my worth come from if there is no image of God? I have none unless I produce it. And when a culture begins to embrace that philosophy, then those who cannot demand their worth are suddenly expendable. And this is the reason that a culture can abort its children Because that child presents a problem rather than value. That child is not timely rather than being the creation of God. That child is the result of some unfortunate, even perhaps abusive behavior. It is not the the, the creation of Almighty God. Therefore, it has no value. Therefore, I don't want it in my life and I can simply exterminate it. Let me make a perfectly clear statement unapologetically. You cannot believe in Imago Dei. You cannot believe in the image of God and be pro-choice. It is impossible. It is impossible. Because if every person has intrinsic value because God has created them, then regardless of the circumstances, I have to acknowledge their value and their worth. But it goes far beyond just the unborn. It reaches to the elderly that we oftentimes set aside and and place no value on and say they've served their purpose and they don't deserve our time and they're more of an annoyance. And suddenly when I recognize that the image of God is is stamped on the life of every elderly person, those people suddenly have value to me. Suddenly the poor have value. The person standing at the, at the traffic light with a sign that I want to say, go get a job. I mean, he might still need to go to a job, but my attitude toward him has to change because he's made in the image of God just like I am. And suddenly the weak, and the handicapped, 
And every human being has value. Why? Not because of what they can produce, not because of their capacity, not, not because of their power, but because God made them and they matter. And if I really believe this, then my enemy has value as well. Because he too has been made in the image of God. God created the universe. He did so with purpose. And in creating the universe, he had created man. And he made man in his image. Now we need to be honest about something. And that is to say that God's image in mankind was marred by the fall. We have been made in God's image. But we are a scarred image. We're a flawed, we're a defaced image. The mirror is cracked. And so God's image in us has been marred. Following their fall into sin, you know the story, Genesis chapter 3, when they fell into sin, Adam and Eve experienced fear and shame and guilt and anger and they died spiritually. All of those things were true. Genesis 3 verses 8 and 9 tells us they were driven from the presence of, of God. All of these things are true, but you know what remained true? That even following the fall, they were still in God's image. And that their sons, Cain and Abel and Seth, were made in the image of God. And that every one of us since, though we are fallen, though the image of God is marred in us, we are still image bearers of God. Here's what I want you to know. That no matter who you are, no matter your past, no matter your failings, no matter your regrets, no matter the shame that's covering over your life, know this, you are made in the image. You are valuable to God and to this world because God made you. Though the image of God is marred in you and me, it's still there. In fact, uh, in, we won't turn to read it, but in Genesis chapter 9 and verse number 6, you can read it later, God says this, it's the, first, it's the establishment of the law uh, of human government. And he says, whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be required. This is the definition of justice. And why, is that, why does God impose justice upon the human family? Because we are made in the image of God. Even in our fallings, we're made in the image of God. So what do we do? Where do we find hope? If, if God created the universe and he did it with purpose, I'm not evolved from uh, lower life forms. I'm not the result of the random selection of, of, of some evolutionary process. No, I am made in the image of God, but I'm, I'm, I'm a marred reflection of him. Where do we find hope? Here's the, the final point. It is that in Jesus Christ, this is our hope, in Jesus, God's image is restored in us. I want to tell you something about Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh, and so Jesus is completely 100% human. He is a man, but he's also completely 100% God. And so the Bible says in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, he is the perfect image of the invisible God. You and I are all human beings. We are the image of God marred. Jesus came to be a man unmarred, unsinning, perfect. He is the perfect image of God. And he, as the perfect reflection, the perfect representation, uh, even the icon the Bible uses the word, he is the perfect image of God. We look to him, and what do we see him doing? We watch him die for us. Not for his own sins, because he was perfect. But for us, he paid the penalty for our sin. And here's where we find hope. 
It is that when we recognize, God, you made me to reflect you, but I don't. You made me to be able to love, but love, that divine attribute in me is marred. And so mostly I love myself and love turns into lust and greed and love is marred in me. And and you made me a free moral agent. You made me like you. I can see right and do it, but mostly I see right and do wrong because the image of God is marred in me. And God, you made me immortal like you so that I can live forever, but because I'm a sinner, now that is marred in me and I'm gonna live forever in hell. I'm gonna be dead, spiritually dead, lost in hell. Forever. God, this is my condition, a broken representation of you. But you sent Jesus the perfect representation. I see him in his perfection. I see him die for me. That's what I need, not my own broken, marred representation. I need the representation of God that I see in Christ to be in me. So we call out to Jesus and guess what he does? The perfect image of God comes to live within the marred image of God to restore the image of God in us. That is the gospel. That's where you find hope. Not in going, I'm not as marred as you. I'm not as muddy as the next guy. No, in going, I'm, we're all marred. All our mirrors are cracked, but I see a perfect one in Jesus. In fact, he comes to live within us and his Holy Spirit dwells within us so that over the process of our lives, this is what the Christian life is all about. Let me just make it clear for you. Here it is. The Christian life is the process of the indwelling Christ shaping in you, restoring in you, fixing in you the marred reflection of God. And one day, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says, when we see him, we shall be like him. The work will be complete. And when I stand before God Almighty, I will in that day be, by his grace and through the gospel of Jesus, a perfect reflection of the image of God again. Because Jesus will have made it so. It's my only hope. Jesus will have made it so. What about you? What about those of you at Merriman? Have you had the image of God restored in your broken life by the perfect Savior, Jesus? I want to give you a chance to do that. Let's bow our heads together.